Do you know where you are? Do you know where you are? is Appetite for Distortion. And welcome to the podcast, Appetite for Distortion. It is Brando, episode 76. Jeez, I think we're nearing, uh, according to SoundCloud numbers and Spreaker numbers, Close to 100,000 listens for this Guns N' Roses-centered uh, podcast. I, I would never believe that anyone will listen to me just in general. I've been saying that 15 years into my career, whatever station I'm on, why do people listen? Uh, usually it's just for the station that I'm on. Hey, I want to hear Blue Oyster Cult. I want to hear Guns N' Roses. I want to hear The Who. And I just happen to be the stooge in the studio. But to start something from the ground up and to be 76 episodes in is just incredible. And that's all thanks to you. Uh, whether you find us through, again, Spreaker, SoundCloud, uh, iTunes, uh, and or uh, AlternativeNation.net. We're featured on their podcast uh, section. And we've made a lot of friends along the way. Uh, one of them, and I, I will thank, because it's kind of led to this this podcast being created in a way. Uh, first, I'll just thank our friend Remco from the Netherlands. He does a lot of uh, Facebook Live for us. He has in this past tour that just ended uh, because he set up my, my co-host for the day. And I want to get, if you've been listening, we, we get creative with co-hosts. Ever since the, the days of my, my former and what we started with, uh, Ian Scotto, uh, we cre- get creative with different co-hosts. So Yanni from Finland is on the phone. Uh, what's going on, Yanni? Oh, fine. Oh, fine. Uh, That's your intro yeah. to the world. Just fine. Okay. Late, late <laughs> evening in in Helsinki. Yeah, it's it's late for you, so I don't want to keep you uh, too long. I appreciate yeah, no. it. And it's not like Yanni, where you play the flute and the long hair and the mustache. I, I just don't know how to pronounce your last name. Lindroot. It's a, like Lindroot. Okay. It's a, like a Lyman Root in, okay. in Swedish. Awesome. I love it. We've had so many. We've had people, like I just mentioned Remco from the Netherlands on. We had Ray from the UK. We've had, of course, uh, you know Kevin from Ireland. We've had, oh my God, it's so many different places. Uh, Tomislav from Croatia on the air, now from Finland. And also, the reason why we have Yanni on, because his Gilby Clark uh, collection is just insane and when i put it out there that i want to have a co-host for today's guest um he was recommended by remco because of just the knowledge that you bring i i've always admitted that i don't know everything even there even though there are people out there who think they know everything about a band which is weird when they're not in the band uh but i i gotta thank uh for coming on today our, our guest uh mark danzian i pronounced it right correctly Right, Dan Zizen. Dan Zizen. You just told me like three minutes ago. <laughs> Dan. That's okay because I screw it up too. It's it's Sunday morning. I always mess it up. Well, you can call me Brandon Weisler instead of Weisler or whatever. So, uh, <laughs> Mark, uh, Dan Zizen. Like, okay, so I Dan love Zizen, it. Yeah. Got it. Thank you. I should have had the the no respect soundbite because I do have 
some sound bites here. Um, let me play this one for you. I don't know how if you go back with uh, with Duff at all. That's pretty yeah. radical. Radical, radical, radical. He likes saying rad a lot, so I put the Ninja yes, Turtle. Yeah. So I mean, I have sound bites. I should have gotten the no respect one for you, and it figures I, I fuck up your last name right away. Because the, <laughs> it's the, all good. the other person, because you're in California right now, so we're three different time zones, all meeting in the AFD show, which is so cool. We do this often. Uh, indirectly, former uh, guest and then also became co-host, uh, our buddy Mitch LaFon from Westwood, Westwood One, a rock tall with, with Mitch LaFon, who indirectly kind of set this up. It's not like he introduced me when he introduced me to Alan Niven. And I had those great conversations with him. This was just, he, he does a lot of on this day, you know, uh, yeah. like it's a lot of sites do that, whether it's a rock site, whether it's a cartoon site, hey, on this day. And, oh, remember that? You know, member yeah. members, you know? So I try to do this in real time, even though this is a podcast. So right now it's August 29th, Sunday. Uh, we've determined that it's late for Yanni. So we got to make sure he gets his beauty sleep. So we're not going to. You know, have a five-hour episode. Uh, you're on the West Coast. I'm here in New York City. But uh, you'll tell us about the background of this record uh, that he did on this day, uh, July 26th. So he just posted this recently. Uh, 1994, yeah. former Guns N' Roses uh, releases a solo album, Pawn Shop Guitars, and includes contributions from Ryan Roxy, former guest of ours, uh, Slash, hope to interview him one day, interview his son, that's kind of close, uh, Matt Sorum, not yet, hope to one day, uh, Dizzy Reed, Axl Rose, which is, of course, the, the holy grail, uh, Mr. Duffman Kagan, which I guess played his uh, sound clip, uh, Jonathan Daniel, Rob uh, Afuso, and more. And then we get a, a, this was on Twitter, we get a response, uh, and we get a, don't forget me, LOL, from uh, Mr. Mark over there. And I, I responded, because I'm tagged in the Mitch thing, so I saw your response. Uh, well, yeah. he did say, and more, <laughs> and you go, yeah, yeah. and what did you say? Do you remember what you said? Uh, Ann Moore has been my career of 40 years. Yeah, <laughs> that pretty much describes your 40-year <laughs> career, which I'm, I just love that answer. And that's something we do on the AFD show. And that's why I love that Yanni came on also, just because he followed Gilby's career and he knows so much about those records that not everyone knows about. And it, but there are stories there, and it all again all connects to, and it's something you said off the air as we just organically get into this conversation. And I think I'll do for my my current listeners um, that I'll do the shotgun news after the interview because there are certain things I don't want to, you know, put on, uh, you know, take away from you. Uh, that you guys have just awesome stories. Uh, the, mm. We were talking off the air, all these, and you said the. Uh, what was the phrase you used? Like the the ten, the ten degrees of separation. I'm like, oh, you know what? Yeah. What I always say is the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, six degrees of G.R. Mm -hmm. Bacon, and that's what this. That's how I've been able to do a a quote Guns N' Roses podcast for for nearly two years. So that just leads me to you, Mark. And it's just yeah. it's so I didn't expect to do this interview prior to two days ago, and then I start. You know, of course, I'm familiar with the pawn shop uh, record, but I start doing more research on you. Of course, you know, you're with the River Dogs. And then something that really, <laughs> I don't know, like you might think it's funny. You might think it's not. I, I remember the the Don't Forget Your Toothbrush uh, wow. show on Comedy Central when they actually had original programming uh, back yeah. in the day with Mark Curry from uh, Don't uh, Hanging with Mr. Cooper. I do remember Cooper. that. You were in the house band for that. And so we're yeah. gonna, we're, I'm just planting the seeds now because I want to find out, you know, how you, you 
came along this path, and uh, Yanni's going to help out with all the details because he has this incredible collection. Uh, and then also you were in the Brady Bunch movie, which I loved because I didn't grow up on the Brady Bunch itself because I'm 34. I mean, I, I uh-huh. it was in reruns, TV Land, you know, uh, Nickelodeon, all that. I mean, I knew of it, but I really oh, yeah. I loved the Brady Bunch movie. And when they had the late and great Davy Jones, I, I know that song, Girl. And I'm like, he was in that band in the movie? This Mark? <laughs> so I'm like, that's so yeah. cool. So just like a lot of people that we interview, yes, there's a Guns N' Roses tie. In the, at the end of the day, that's probably how you found us. Yes, I there's suppose. A, and I still, I, the Brady Bunch movie, there's also the Snake Pit tie. It, yes, and the Slash of Snake Pit. Well, that's also like a Guns N' Roses tie. Guns N' Roses. It all, yeah, it all revolves around Guns N' Roses. Right, but <laughs> it, it just leads us to these weird ways of, you know, the Brady Bunch movie or when we interviewed Jimmy Ashurst. He had a small cameo in Back to the Future. So it's just all these different, mm-hmm. just cool things, but we all congregate here but somehow some way because of Guns N' Roses. So, uh, welcome officially <laughs> with my big preamble. I, had to, I, I always like to set it up organically. How did we get here? How did we get to this conversation? I like to have a rhyme or reason. You know, why do we have a guy from Finland on the line? He, you know, he's sending me all since last night, all the, 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 his collection. Like, what do you have, Yanni, from Gilby's collection that Mark would be a, like, a part of? Like, do you, do you know? Because like, you said off the air that he, he sent you something a couple months ago. So you actually guys mm-hmm. kind of like know each other. So Yanni, what do you have in your your collection that uh, would be fruit in this conversation? No, my favorite uh, uh, item is this uh, videotape, Bounce Up Guitars videotape. That's a rather rare item nowadays. I I ordered it. I think in late '90s from Bounce Up Guitars One Club. That's that's one of my favorite items from the pawn shop guitars fan club. Like, have you? Yeah. Did you digitize the uh, the tape, or no? Or is it uh, you just have no? It on no, I have only only a videotape. Okay. I hope that one day one day it would be released as DVD, but I don't know. Will it ever happen? Mark, what did you send him? Was that the tape? Did you send him? No, I sent, uh, I sent him just a poster. Yeah, old stuff. A poster. I sent him like. A cool thing, like an old itinerary of when we did, you know, the the big tour we did in South America, and just a few other little collectible things that you know I've had that I could, you know, I can make copies of that. And I had a couple posters sitting around from uh, the album, so I sent him that. And uh, you know what I could dig up. I mean, I I I really love this. You know, I, I love the fact that people can get just so intensely involved in an artist or, you know, a band's career and all this stuff like means the world, you know, not just to me cause I'm a collector too. So when I see people like Yanni and there, there's a couple of the guys out there, a couple in South America and stuff that are huge, huge guns collectors, Gilby collectors. Um, and it just amazes me. You know, I just, I think it's, it's amazing that that passion, even in a, you can get everything on the internet kind of world and nobody really focuses on having the meat and potatoes, which is either something physical you can hold. I love that, that Yanni's so into that. And does it blow you away that, you know, since 1994, I mean, this record that he made 19, like, and that was, what a year for music that was. There was, yeah, there was a lot of really good bands that came out. I mean, that might've been the year I got my first record, which was uh, Green Day's Dookie. 
It yeah. sounds so weird. I mean, you know, it sounds like Green Day. Sh- well, it is Green Day shit, literally, but it's would say it like that. They made they man. They made their mark. You know. Yeah, but it was in my uh, my Hanukkah stocking. I got the cassette. I, yes, I had a Hanukkah stocking. I have a weird That's family. Awesome. So, uh, but yeah, 94 and just all these years later, it is really cool. And that's, you know, in addition to talking to people like you, why I, I like talking to people like Yanni, who have just have this fandom on another, another level, a healthy level, <laughs> uh, that yeah. all, all these years later are still making you feel good about the work that you've done all those years ago. So where did it start for you, Mark? Are you from, because I know you're calling us from the West Coast now. Are you from yeah. originally? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm from a small town in uh, like 60 miles outside of LA called Riverside. And Riverside's kind of like a little redneck town. Uh, orange groves and, you know, grapevines and everything back in the day, you know, when I was a kid. Um, but there was really, you know, not much to do. And my father was a composer and arranger and single dad. So I had this thing where, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the hell out of here and go to LA as soon as I can. As soon as I get some wheels, get out of high school and come to LA. So I've always been here and of course toured everywhere, but I've always been an LA guy. Not so much crazy about it like I used to be because it's, it's a little bit nutty here now as far as people, attitudes, traffic, everything else. Oh. Yeah, I used, to, I used to champion the fact that, yeah, I'm an LA guy, but now it's like, yeah, you could be anywhere in this day and age. You can be anywhere and, and be happy. But yeah. yeah, just basically born and raised here and have been in the city of L.A. as a musician, I've been here since 1980, 81. Hmm. So if your dad, like, what kind of a composer was he? Was he orchestral? Was he what I'm imagining, like what Bugs Bunny used to do? I mean, obviously. No, you're exactly right. Yeah, Um, yeah, because his generation, um, he went to music vocational school in Philadelphia and uh, grew up there got his you know a degree in music way back when and then then he started composing and arranging he could play every horn instrument trumpet trombone french horn um not reeds but horns and he was also an arranger and started with the big bands when he was you know 20 years old or whatever and started touring in the east coast with a lot of famous swing bands and big bands of that era during the early you know mid 40s and uh slowly moved out west that's why I became a West Coast guy, because he just, you know, was married, wanted to raise kids, didn't want to be in the big city, and came out west because he got some gig offers as a session musician and a day gig offer. So he took that. But uh, until the day he passed away in 90, and until the day, like, four weeks before he passed away, he was still composing and arranging uh, sheet music for people and doing whatever, you know, he was great at. Hmm. He was amazing. He's my he out of all the idols. I know it's kind of cliche for people to say, "Oh, my dad was my idol." He truly was, because I always wanted to be what he was, and that was arranger, composer, multi instrumentalist. Um, he was far more gifted than I am, but he was a great man, and that's what pushed me into music. It's not necessarily cliche in our rock and roll environment because not there are so many. Like the tortured artist, that the, the cliche of that, you know, don't come yeah, from a, a great family, especially, you know, you might have an absentee father. That that, that haps, happens a lot. So that's awesome that, you know, that your your dad was there and encouraged you and was so bright. Oh, yeah. it, it's not just, I mean, to be to do that to to write and compose is just on on such another level. Then how come you didn't go that route? Like, what made you go into the rock route well, initially? I did. 
Oh, like, well, here's the thing. I, when I originally, I was always a drummer, but I could play piano, guitar, and uh, sing as well. So when I left, when I said, I'm going to go to L.A. and make it big, you know, and <laughs> right. you know, my friends were like, yeah, yeah, sure, dude, dream on. I said, no, no, I'll do it. There was a lack of drummers around that time period, around 81, 82, and I had been kind of splitting the time with a friend of mine's band in Redondo Beach, and which is 80 miles from Riverside. So I've been driving back and forth since I was 16, 17 years old. And I really wanted to come to L.A. to be a singer-songwriter guy. But there was a lack of drummers at that time. So when I first got into a band as a drummer, it just stuck. Hmm. You know, and, and it was a, in a band, there was a band called the Motels during the 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Martha Davis and the Motels. So my friend, one of my best friends, Jeff Gerard, was the guitar player and founder of that band with Martha Davis. When that band broke up, well, actually, he left the band, uh, 81 or something like that. In 82, he started a band called The Flames. I just answered like a freaking recycler Craigslist kind of ad. It was before Craigslist, of course, but answered a newspaper ad, LA Times or Recycler or whatever, that they needed a drummer in this band, The Flames. And I went and auditioned, and I went, well, this is kind of cool, because I was, I was not like a a metal drummer. I like guys. I, the hardest my metal ever was, and it's not even metal, it's hard rock, was Zeppelin and Deep Purple. Sure. Everything else in my life, because I grew up with a father who was a composer, arranger, and I grew up with, you know, symphony orchestrations and jazz, and I was a jazz swing drummer long and Motown soul drummer before I was even close to being the rock guy. Ah. And it's just that rock bands needed drummers. So when I got into The Flames... Uh, with Jeff, it was more like an R&B pop new wave band, but little R&B flavored, kind of Motowny flavored. It was a hot female singer, by the way. <laughs> um, that was another motivating moment. Always, in that band. <laughs> Yeah, and it also led to <laughs> some bad trouble. Doesn't it always? <laughs> don't, ever, don't mess with your singer. Um, mm. So that happened, and you know that was the thing, and that started, and then. I just started getting session work for, you know, everything from the Hitsville studio, which is Motown's West Coast, uh, with a few people and a friend of mine. And uh, we would do session work there and then doing rock sessions. And then 84 came up. And then it was more, I was more like in the alternative new wave band thing. Again, not on the strip. I wasn't a strip rock drummer. Okay. And and it just kind of, because uh, I just, I never... At that point, I'm I'm way over it now. But then I was still had that snobbish attitude, that kind of jazz guy that you wanted to punch in high school. That was like the great guy in jazz band. He didn't understand <laughs> it. And if you're a football player, they would kick your ass. That like, kind of like, were you a band geek? I was not. I was not a marching band geek. Okay. Those are, that to me, that's like the marching. I tried marching band my fresh in junior high. I did it in freshman year. In high school, and that's kind of like when your balls drop and you go, I'm not doing this. So <laughs> sure. I said, no way. Everybody's making fun of me. So I failed out of that. So I think my first three periods were concert band, jazz band, and rock band or something like that. Because my high school was really liberal. So we had like all these band classes. Gotcha. And I thought, cool. I could do anything to get out of biology and math. This is awesome. So I just, you know, I kind of was this jazz snob coming to LA, and then I had to like, check my ego and go, you know, no, that's just not how it works. It's not, it's more like if you're going to be in a strip band, they want the look, they want the poses, they want the big kit, 
they want all this, you know, I want the huge hair. They want all that shit if you're going to be in a band. And I, I'm sorry, I cussed. Um, no, you're allowed to curse so, on here. Yay. All right. I said fuck before, uh, I think. It's fine. Okay, there you go. And you did it again. <laughs> I know. On so, purpose. On purpose. On purpose. So I just, you know, I kind of said, well, I'm not going to go the glammy poison route um, when the 80s, late 80s hit, mid 80s. That's not me. And I stayed with the alternative side of things. And of course, they didn't like each other. If you were playing all the other alternative clubs in Santa Monica, you weren't a strip band. The strip guys would be total dicks to anybody who was in a band that sounded like U2 or The Cure or Psychedelic Furs or The Alarm. You were hated. Like, you're just not cool, bro. It's like, oh, okay, great. That's Let's little pigeonhole it. Forget it. So, uh, I you know, I did that. And then I did start getting into rock stuff. Um, God, when was that? Like, 88, 89, I would say. I was in a couple bands that didn't do anything. You know, you'd start them out. And, you know, so everybody's fighting for a record deal in Los Angeles. Every other band wants a deal. So... Yeah, then I did the rock thing. And by chance, when, uh, uh, geez, you know, 1989, 90 hit is when Vivian Campbell's wife and my wife, who have been friends for years, uh, Vivian's first wife, by the way, um, they were friends and they talked. And then my wife told me, hey, Viv's looking for a, a drummer for the river dogs that this band that just got signed to Epic and they're really cool. You might like them. And I went, really? Okay. So I called Viv and I had had lunch and knew Viv and we were friends in 85, but he forgot about me because he'd been doing the Dio thing and the white snake thing. And I was doing separate things. So he had no idea where I was. I had no idea where he was. So we couldn't get in contact with each other. Then it happened, and I went and played with those guys, and it was magic. The songs were amazing. Singer was great. Everybody held their ground, and it was just a great band. And we all thought that it was going to do something in 90, and it didn't. The Epic had changed gears, fired everybody, got new people to work at the label. The same old story that happens all the time. And, you know, four bands who were the babies that they really wanted to nurture get dropped. And we got dropped, like, within four months. Of the record release, and it was sad, and Viv went his separate ways and did a project with Lou Graham called Shadow King, and then right after that, he went to Def Leppard. Okay. So, and we went our separate ways. I mean, the, the River Dogs guys did their things. So anyway, not to get into every detail. Uh, that's why you're here. This is this is your life. Okay. So, uh, so anyway, that's, you know, that's what happened, and I ended up going over my, you know, Ron Young called me from Little Caesar and said uh, the drummer left and we just finished a record, unfortunately, and I wish you would have played on it, but you didn't. And now we're doing a tour of Europe. Would you like to do that? And this was 92 or 93? 92 or 93, I can't remember. Okay. 92. And that's, you know, when did Little Little Caesar thing for a while. That was amazing. That was really good. It was just a shame because I was told when I joined the band, Ron goes, he goes, yeah, let's enjoy it. Let's make a lot of money because, you know, you're really joining a sinking ship. There's no future in it. But if you want to have fun and rock for a month. Oh, wow. That's, that's, a, that's a way to, okay. that's a self-esteem yeah, builder. Awesome. That's a moral, morale yeah. builder. Yeah, really. You just pumped me up really hard. And then the big letdown. But I got it. And again, that's a label thing. Okay, we tried to, we released your record. Uh, we're going to throw darts at the board of, of how long you're going to last here and see what happens. And 
it didn't. And uh, that was that for Caesar. And then, uh, oh, God, you know, just kind of moved on and did other things. And and then it was not too long after Caesar because, again, let me now – I should I backtrack and tell, like, Gilby and I's relationship? Sure, because we want everything to to intersect. But but before we do that, because you before that the record that you made, and that's how we all started, and how you know I was intrigued by your your Twitter response to to Mitch Lafon and everything. But would you say the yeah. River Dogs oh, when that first happened and the deal happened? That was your first quote big break, and then now and then just so shortly after your first like heartbreak, like like because yeah. I, I always try to find where the person realizes okay. Like, just like you, I moved to L.A., I'm making this life for myself, and everyone has that dream, but not everyone can make it, and, and, and oh, yeah. still be kind of doing it. Like, you have a 40-year career. Not everyone knows their name, but you still have a career. Is that when you mm-hmm. said to yourself, I can do this for a living, or did that come before? Like, did that go away after the four months? Like, oh, my God, what the hell? Like, there's nothing I could do. Like, I, well, I can't. no, you know, when I do, the thing that really broke it for me as far as, like, oh, shit, I can make money doing this was if I backtrack and go after the Flames thing and do a few other things, uh, in 84 I was in a band called Ashes, which is a three-piece band. And we were great. And I don't say that much about many things that I play in, but we were really close. We were a three-piece that sounded like a five-piece. It was a huge wall of sound. We were very much English influence as far as our sound. It was very melodic but heavy at the same time. Uh, very ambient. The singer was... They had a really cool voice, and I was able to sing lead on a few songs, and it was it was a great band. And we had five or six labels, you know, that were coming to us, taking us to lunch, to dinner, putting us in studios, you know, and we recorded all kinds of stuff, but nobody would pull the trigger on it because we were a three-piece. And their excuse, of course, we already have one police. We don't need another three-piece band, so too bad. That's so and, uh, stupid. <laughs> but that, but that was that started putting the fire under me. Going, you know, if I work this correctly, and whatever band I'm in, we work this correctly, could actually make a living out of doing this. Whether it's you know getting paid to be on the label, getting a little bit of salary from songwriting, from publishing, however it might work out. And then I started getting more involved in it. You know, thinking like, well, music business is hard enough as it is. This could turn out to something, and maybe maybe my dreams will come true. You know, that kind of vibe. Sure. But after that, you know, this will sound weird, but at, right after that one, the Flames, we gave it a shot until 86, 85, or something like that, and then I just bailed. I said, I got to move on, no insult to you guys, but I've got to try to get into something else and make a living out of this. So at the time, I was working part-time at Guitar Center, and there was only two guitar centers, I think, in the United States at that time. One on wow. Sunset Boulevard. Hollywood had Sunset Store, and then there was one in San Diego. No other guitar centers. And huh. if you got a job there, it was kind of a elite job to have because anybody who was an out-of-work musician really wanted to work there during the day so they could afford to rehearse at night. <laughs> okay, um, sure, that makes sense. We, we had one of the guys that worked there was Mark Turin. And... That's where I met him, and he later was Bullet Boy singer. Mm. Um, Mark Turin and I, many disagreements. And, you know, I know there's a lot of stories, bad rap in the guy, um, about his behavior, whatever. I've known him too long, and I just, like, kind of blow it off now. Bug me to begin with, but Mark is a definite 
personality of his own, you know, I'll just leave it at that. But that's where I first met him, and him and I started doing sessions with a lot of people. Because back in that day, before the Bullet Boys thing was a thought, Mark was a an amazing Steve Perry kind of a singer. He didn't have gravel or roughness in his voice. Oh, he was brilliant. That's interesting. And he was a brilliant, and still is, like, as good as Eddie Van Halen. Him and Eddie were very tight. So Mark is a great guitar player and a pretty good songwriter. So we started hanging out. So after the Ashes thing fell through, this is like 85, 86, uh, he joined briefly King Cobra, and Mick and Lonnie and Dave Henserling were all part of that project at the time. And when Carmine would go out of town on business, I would go over and play drums with them, and we'd work up new songs. So in so then that turned into something else. Now I keep I'm running all over myself right now. Before that happened, <laughs> I'm following along. Here's a big edit. Before that happened, Mark and I had worked on the Rocky Four soundtrack. We had a song on there called "Sweetest Victory." Oh wow! Okay, and. Stallone was like wanted to manage us, and we had all these connections, and we were going to be the the next Survivor. Survivor had the big hit, so we're going to have the next Eye of the Tiger with this song, who was written by someone else, a big songwriter, hit songwriter. Mark and I went in the studio and recorded that song to be on the Rocky Four soundtrack, and they thought it was going to be the lead single off that record, and it wasn't. Um, then Mark and I parted ways for. I could give you the big and tall side of it, but it wasn't pretty. Um, but, you were, but you were saying the lead uh, single off the Rocky Four soundtrack, right? Yes, we what, thought it was going to be, but was that like the America or something like that. Was what? that the Hearts and Fire, the one that ended up being the uh, yeah. John Cafferty? Okay. Oh my God. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, that one in that... That may or may not be on my Spotify playlist <laughs> all these years <laughs> later. It gets me going. The Sweetest Victory, the sweetest victory song, it's such an anthemic... You know, like Eye of the Tiger, Feel Good, Big Rock, that's a cliche song. But sure. it would have been a hit single, and it didn't. And, again, there's that down moment for me of, like, oh, this is going to be awesome. You know, MGM's going to pick this up. And, unfortunately, we were on Scotty Brothers, who released the record, and Scotty Brothers is one of the most notoriously shitty labels you can ever be on <laughs> uh, because you will get nickel number nothing if you join anything on that. Survivor made nothing off Eye of the Tiger. Um, and it's sad, but that's the kind of label they were. And there was plenty of them in L.A. Mm. And I don't mind saying it. So so Scotty Brothers released a record. We thought it was going to do good. It didn't. Mark and I kind of had a falling out. And then a year later, six months later, Mark came to me with Mick and Lonnie. He said, let's start rehearsing. Did this and that. So then it came up to where Dave Hensley, the guitar player that was in King Cobra, was no longer a part of it. King Cobra had broken up, so now it was Mark, Lonnie, Mick, and myself were rehearsing like crazy, writing songs, and that ended, I brought the name to the band because it was a band, I had a band called the Bullet Boys back in the late 70s out in Riverside, and um, uh, friends of mine had the band, I didn't, but that was something that I thought of then, and I thought of bringing it back, so when they needed a name, I said, here, and you know, here I got a logo for it and everything, let's just do this, okay, we'll call it Bullet Boys. So we went out and played a few shows in L.A., and then, you know, I, Mark and I had a falling out again, and I'd left the band right about a month before they signed the Warner Brothers deal. They got their buddy Jimmy to come in, and Mark's buddy Jimmy came in and took my spot. 
and uh, rest is bullet boys history as far as those guys go. So, it, you know, Mark and I have had a very long relationship as far as like doing a lot of session work together and stuff. So it's kind of like, I just kept going, man, because I mean, the worst thing a guy can do, if it's really not in your blood to know there's going to be these depressing down moments of rejection or being thrown out of a band or just leaving a band. It's like, you know, leaving a job you love or getting fired from a job you love. Even if you're not making money, it's a big ego hit. It's a, it's a huge lag and you just have to like pick yourself up and get the hell out the door and do it again. Let's put together another project. Let's find what's going on. And it, it's uh it's a strange business. It always has been. I don't know why I've tortured myself this long. Um, there are there are avenues and areas of it that I really love. Um, writing being one of them, more so than drumming, I would say. So uh, after dealing with all this, and like you said, you know, the River Dogs, us being so up, Viv being really pumped up about it, because Vivian's always said that that first River Dogs record to him was like the best he's ever played. He was a writer, and he was actually getting credit to being a writer. Uh, as long as, you know, is it with everybody else that were on that first album? Because I wasn't on that first record. I joined about a month after the record was completed because they used a session guy to play drums on that record. Um, bummer for me, because I would have loved to have played on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's okay because they've always, you know, I thought considered me as a, you know, a real member of that band uh, because I was really the only drummer to be in the river dogs because they use a session drummer on the album. If that makes any sense. Sure. So no, it as does. far as being a band member, that was all about me and Rob, Nick and Viv. Um, we gave it our best try and it was a great band. And we rehearsed the hell out of that band. We were rehearsing like four hours a day, every day, practically except Sundays and could never get that big tour. Our manager at the time was like, well, you guys need to go out and tour, but it's got to be the right thing. And we had offers from everybody from, to go out with Kiss, go out with Bad Company, go out with Nelson and any other band that was the flavor of the month, you know, that year, which is 90. And he kept turning them down. And then we ended up going out and doing a show or two with Cheap Trick and doing some one-offs, you know, around the country. And it just, you know, we did what we did. And then all of a sudden the the big, the big uh, changing of the guard up there at Epic CBS Sony. And we were just not liked by the new guys that were in there. And uh, we got pushed out for some unknown band at the time called Pearl Jam. They'll never do anything. <laughs> um, so we just kind of went, oh, okay, whatever. We'll give it. Everybody's in the Seattle mode. It's 1990. So it's a Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana world. Let's let them do their thing. It won't last. It won't last. I didn't say that because I knew, you know, I personally liked a lot of that stuff. And um, I'm a huge Chris Cornell Soundgarden fan. And uh, I mean, just, it was inevitable. I mean, things, it's cyclical, things change, things come back around. I get it. Uh, the guys weren't so happy about it. I was hugely bummed that the River Dogs didn't get out of the gate. Uh, it was a band that deserved a lot more credibility. Um, I'm shocked now, all these years later, that there's people that still remember, there's still people dedicated sites to, you know, fan club for the River Dogs, and it amazes me. I mean, I just like, there's people like Yanni that, that collects, you know, Gilby stuff after all these years from 94, 95. And, you know, uh, again, we had a bad deck of cards dealt to us with, uh, we thought it was going to do something. And then 
Virgin said, well, you know, your tour isn't doing that well. Even if it's your tour, you're doing clubs and some small theaters. It's really a grungy thing that the people are liking. Anything is a bad name if it has GNR attached to it. And we heard everything, every excuse possible. Wow. So it, we were, you know, again, like I said, it's been a freaking roller coaster ride. I think I got, the, I finally, uh, hopefully, the, I believe you'll be able to hear it, but the, the clip that I feel like describes the theme of the conversation thus far and what brought us together today. Now I get no respect. So I got it. You got no respect. It's ridiculous. So oh. since we have, because I mean, there is respect, obviously, but what I mentioned before, 94, such an era in music, and it so, was so hard for Gilby and that era to get, uh, that, that, that genre to get lost in the grunge kind of music because that was the hot thing at the time. Uh, yeah. But you still have the respect of people like Yanni, me, and, and so many other fans that are still following along, even though you don't have the sexy name or you're not out there like Pearl Jam. It doesn't take away. I mean, yes, we're no, no, kidding around with the, the no respect, but I know I understand it at a level. So you go back uh, a, like a long way with, with Gilby before you even oh, made man. the record. So because how far back, like when did that start? Cause Probably when we, well, we both, well, I was kind of going between my time, my mother's house in Redondo, and my dad's house in Riverside, like high school age. So I met him. He was working at a place in Redondo Beach, Torrance area, called Hogan's House of Music. And he was just cleaning up. He was just working in the store. And that's when I first met him was back in those days. I want to say that could have been late 70s, possibly. And I, I was friend, knew nothing about him except he was just a cool dude, and we talk once in a while. And then... A few years after that, of course, around the time when I was in Ashes in 84, um, 83, he was doing Candy. And, you know, Candy was Jonathan Him, John Schubert on drums, um, Kyle Vincent on vocals. So I would see them at Wong's West all the time, and Roxy or Whiskey or whatever, and Candy would play. And they were, you know, a Bay City Rollers, New York Dolls pop glam band. And... Uh, it was that's how I knew him, and we were just friends. You know, we'd play softball on Sundays sometimes. We'd get some guys together um, during the 80s. You know, we'd hang out, and, you know, he'd get a motorcycle. You know, I had my Harley. He had his Harley. We'd detail and work on our bikes together. I mean, we were bros. And all this time and all these years passed, we had never, ever played together or jammed together. It was very funny. And then – we even passed like other bands that I was in with GNR was out. We'd pass each other. And I'd, you know, call him on the phone or find out where he was. And, you know, we'd say, Hey, each other, like, how's it going? It's going great. How's tour going? It's going great. But still, you know, it was never a desire for me to ask him, Hey, we should put a band together. Or him to ask me, Hey, we should put a band together. We were just friends. Hmm. And it was like, we weren't musicians, which is to me is awesome. Cause I love normal friendships. And, oh yeah, that's how you know nobody has like an like a ulterior motive. Like you just know you like oh, the person as a person. No, and he's never been an egomaniac, which is absolutely true. He's never been one of those typical dickheads where it's all about me. And no, I don't need to sign an autograph, and I don't need to talk to this person. They're not going to further my career. This and that. There's no dickishness, if that's a great word. <laughs> up. A dickishness to him at all. Sounds like a. David Copperfield kind of a thing. Um, but, uh, or Dickens. He, uh, great guy, 
always was cool. We always got along, you know. And then the time came up when it was the tail end of all the controversy of Guns N' Roses finishing the tour, not working. Oh, my God, the redhead flipped his wig. He's firing everybody, and he's getting sick of this. And Gilby spoke out of turn to a reporter. And, I mean, there's all this National Enquirer son bullshit going on about, you know, uh, what happened. Um, it just ran its course, and everybody was tired is what happened mm-hmm. to the GNR thing. And, uh, you know, and Axel is very – I am uh, I can sympathize with Axel because I am very – I have bi- I call them tripolar moments when I one day I'm just a, an asshole and I just don't feel like talking to anybody or doing anything and and you know until you get that figured out it's kind of difficult on everyone around you so Gilby said well I have my publishing deal with Virgin Music or Virgin Publishing and now they and our guy at Virgin asked me if I would consider doing a solo album and this is like ninety three ish end of ninety three ish. So Gilby then called me up and he goes, let's jam. I'm going to round up Joe from, you know, Dogs to More, the guitar player, and uh, other guys like Mark Ford. You know, I'm going to get these guitar players come in. Let's, just, let's rent some rehearsal space and jam. So that's what we did. And we got either Will to play bass or somebody else who, you know, it was basically call your friends, see who's available, let's book three hours at a rehearsal room and go batshit crazy. So, okay, we'll play a bunch of covers, throw out ideas, do whatever. And that's what we did. And the, and then all of a sudden, Gilby started fine-tuning it, and he got Teddy Zigzag, Teddy Z, who also did the last of Illusion tours as keyboardist. Teddy Z played keyboards for us if we did a live show. So we did a couple clubs around town. Hmm. And just for the sake of, you know, we would call it Tequila Brothers or whatever, just like a fictitious name, and go out and play. And it was Joe Dog Alameda on guitar, me on drums, uh, Gilby, uh, Will on bass, efforts on bass, and Teddy Zigzag playing keyboards once in a while. So we'd go out and do some bluesy kind of stuff, you know, swampy, stonesy-ish stuff, and then on the other side we'd do our Beatlesque, Bowie-ish kind of thing on the other end. And do like, you know, eight, ten songs and call it a night. And this started becoming a regular thing, and then we started demoing up stuff. And, um, you know, Gilby would... Uh, Call his buddy Rod O'Brien, who's an amazing. He actually engineered the Pawn Shop record. Rod, as far as I'm concerned, Rod's mostly involved with how it sounded. I mean, he's he's always been a great guy and a great engineer. New York guy, Rod O'Brien. Look him up. He actually worked on Toys in the Attic and a bunch of other great Aerosmith records with Jack Douglas. Nice. Um, legendary. One of those legendary guys. So we started demoing. Then we'd give the demos, or Gilly would hand the demos over and let the guys at Virgin hear them. And then they signed him. And we, he came, he called me up. He goes, dude, they gave me the deal. I said, really? For a solo record? I go, how many records? He goes, one album. And I'm like, well, fuck, one album's one album, man. Let's just do it. <laughs> so then then we started doing pre-production. And, you know, of course, you know, management came in. And uh, Doug Goldstein at the time was, you know, the guns manager. Doug was managing it just briefly to get us through the sessions and then handed it over to Doug's assistant, a guy named Mike Hall, okay. who is an awesome guy, ball breaker. Don't fuck with me on budget numbers. Don't do anything. You know, I protect my band. He's that kind of guy. Doug is the same way. Doug would rather kick your ass and take. I was just about to say that. I mean, yeah. he is yet to be a guest, but I've had some on off air conversations with him. Very nice, but he's definitely like, no nonsense. I'm going to tell you what I think. And no, yeah, yeah. No. Absolutely. Protect, very protective, Mother Goose. And yeah, that's yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
you need to have that. And Gilby said, you know, ask Doug, you know, I know it's kind of an, I'm on the outs with, you know, the thing that happened in the situation with Axel, and I hope you don't hold it against me. Doug's like, oh, fuck no. I'll, I'll get you through the deal and see what happens. And then Mike took over. And Mike, anybody that Doug had working for in management, they were all ball breakers, but amazing people. And I'd rather have a guy have that honest attitude and tell me what's wrong, tell me what's right, than to be this manipulative, you play the bullshit games, sure. passive-aggressive crap. Don't do that shit. Just sure. say, tell it like it is. You don't like me? Tell me to my face. Don't sit there and tell ten other people. I agree. And that's the kind of, and I love that. So, going through this process and getting us into A and M Studios and doing the Gilby record was, you know, it was quite a thing. And it happened kind of fast. I mean, we were all kind of surprised. You know, I get a call from Gilby one day. He goes, "Pre-production's going good." And then, you know, of course, in search for a producer, you know. Gilby chooses Wadi Wachtel. I threw four other producers at Gilby, and Gilby wasn't interested, and I was kind of shocked. Not that it was my band, but I was I went, dude, Wadi, you know, he's not really known for the type of stuff that you're doing. He did a great job on one of the church's albums, but and, if he, and he's a great guitar player, but really, you got to get a guy that's, like, going to make us sound bigger than big and um, get your vibe. And he's like, yeah, I know, but I really like Wadi. So Wadi was the choice. And um, <clears throat> I'll leave that at that. So then it was probably five weeks, I think, we were over at A&M uh, rec- recording his record. And it was uh, it was emotional. It was a kind of an emotional ride. It wasn't like, as happy as, like, going into rehearsals going, oh, cool, let's just jam and here we got to record these songs. There's a lot of friction there on, on a few areas, never between Gilby and I or anybody that was in the band, per se. Okay. Um, just certain people that uh, were trying to run the show, run the show and do things who shouldn't have opened their mouths and shouldn't have even been involved because they have no musical background whatsoever. Hmm. But that's the way it was. Um, we were still tight knit guys and we still, you know, we all went, you know, Gilby and I, and if Ryan was there, cause Ryan did play in a couple songs, but it was mostly Joe and Gilby that did the guitars. And of course, slash on, um, slash played on, Tijuana Jail, he played on Cure Me, and Yanni would know. Did he play on Black uh, guitar, or was it just not, not sure? No, I think need to, need to check. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was just. I could be wrong. It could be just Tijuana Jail and um, Cure Me. Tell me that. Yeah, Flash right, right now, uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, Black is just with uh, Matt Sorum and Dizzy. Matt Sorum, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so just lasted the two songs. And every day for me, it was funny because, you know, even though I wasn't going to play, whether it was Rob Afuso that played drums or even Duff who offered to play drums on a song and did it. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and Eve, John Schubert from Candy played drums on a song. Matt played two songs or whatever, three songs. I can't remember. Um, Eric Scotus, who was in Gilby's previous band, uh, played, uh, played drums on a, a song. So, Gilby wanted to really make this a friendship record, not exactly what the the label dictated. They only wanted the GNR guys like Duff, Matt, Axel slash had to play on one song or two songs. This sounds that like was the there. building of that because uh, we had recent conversation. I mean, when we interviewed James Hunting from uh, 
from the outpatients, and obviously when we interviewed uh, Greg Buckwalter, they said the same thing. We're making that record, and a lot of the GNR guys, I mean, had to be, and West was able to bring them on, and they even changed yeah. the 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 album cover, and they said featuring Axel and Slash and Duff, and that they were the focus. So yes. then you know, then let me ask this because uh, I think it was both James said it was okay. Like when like Duff offered to play bass, right? And he right. he didn't mind. So when you had all these guest players and the label kind of forcing it down your throat, like how did that? Like what was your what was your mentality at the time? Like this is cool. I'm getting to play with the Guns N' Roses guys. Or no, I didn't. I didn't care because I'd never thought of them as the Guns N' Roses guys. They were all just friends. Okay. So I didn't care. You know, I'm. Hey man, if you can sell a record and you have to name drop. That's the label's priority if they're going to do that. For me, the only thing that that really pissed me off about doing that record, personally, was we all knew that I was going to play all the songs on the album. And it wasn't until we were in the studio when I found out that, oh, by the way, did you know this guy's playing this song now, and this guy's playing this song, and this song, and this song? I lost my shit. Oh, that's. I mean, I honestly. There's a way I was to do like, it. There's a way to do it. That's and it not was, the way. Yeah. I mean, and I wasn't, you know, and I didn't. I didn't put my. I left. I fucking. I tossed my sticks in a stick bag, and I left without telling anybody I was leaving. And Gildy called me up at home, and he goes, "Dude, what's wrong?" And I said, "Hey, I, I love you, dude, but this is kind of fucked. And I know we're bros, and I understand that they want to milk as many people to try to sell records, but I was always told that I was going to play in the record." all the record and you know and gilby just said my hands are tied i can't do anything i don't blame gilby at all i mean gilby and i have always been friends through this and i understand it because i've been through other record deals where half the time you know they're all helen kellers anyway they're all paid to listen and can't hear Hmm. so i i just kind of ignore the record mentality of it the company mentality because like i said they're not musicians they're not artists they don't understand how we feel and they don't give a shit how we feel so that put me back, but that being said, it fueled it to where I made sure the songs that I played, I played my ass off. <laughs> so that's I'm proud of what I played on that album. Right on. Even on the blue, you know, the Gilby record, the blues record, which was a Japanese release. Um, I'm proud of what I did vocally on that record because side by side, almost all the background vocals on that record are, are me with Gilby, and I really. Love the fact that Gilby would come to me and he goes, and I'd ask him, what are you doing on this course? What do you hear harmony-wise? He goes, I don't know. That's your job. <laughs> like, okay, thanks a lot. Cool. So, yeah, he's he's always been a great dude as far as being open. And uh, I really, you know, it was, like I said, that was the toughest part about doing that album for me was just that personally because it was definitely a slap in the face. But I like what I did. I think the album, it's really raw. It's not overproduced in any way. Um, it's its a guitar player's record because it's fun and it's real earthy as far as the guitar tones go. Um, Gilby played the shit out of those box AC-30s as far as an amp and his Pauls and Telly's here and there. And I mean, Rod O'Brien and Waddy are both amazing at guitar sounds. Um, I like it. You know, I, I like it. I still like it. I can still listen to it. Uh, Gilby beats himself up or did back then about, he goes, Hey, and I love this about him. He's like, Hey man, I go, cause I brought it up one day jokingly saying, if you're getting all these guest players to come in 
and play guitar, sing background, or do this and that? Are you going to get any guest vocalists to come in? Like Slash has a vocalist on Snake Pit. Are you going to get a vocalist? Are you going to do it? He goes, I'm going to do it. And I went, really? He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm not a lead singer, but I like to sing, and it's fun. All right. And I think that's, I think that's fucking awesome because it really it's about character. It, you don't have to be an amazing Robin Zander lead vocalist. No, or I mean, look Zander at Bob Dylan. Oh, my God. You know? I mean, it's, char- it's character. It's a vibe. It's like, you know, only a snob and, a, you know, somebody that's like, oh, Steve Perry's the best, man. It's like, okay, great. That's That type of singing, he's the best at what he does. But Gilly wants it to be raw and stonesy and doesn't give a shit about that. And you got to love and respect the guy for that. I always say that when I talk about the, the different Van Halens. It's like, yeah, Hagar's oh, yeah. a better singer. But and I like yeah. that version. But Dave Lee Roth, man, that's a certain vibe that you just can't recreate. You know? Nope. Nope. He's a showman and he has a character. And I think that band would have never gotten a deal if they had another singer. You're probably nope. right. You're absolutely because right. Eddie, Eddie's God, yes, we all know that. And he was the selling point of that band being, you know, and I again another band I've known and seen since the mid seventies in backyard parties and saw their upcoming and just kind of went, wow, that's staggering. Such a huge band to come out of L.A. Hmm. And, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, Hagar, loved him with Montrose. Uh, he grew up out in my area, in Riverside area, Fontana area, and I admired watching him when I was a kid in clubs and he had his bands before he was in Montrose. And he was amazing then, and he's, you know, he still sings his ass off, but that's a whole different vibe. That's a different Different vibe, completely. Absolutely. Uh, Yanni, do you have any questions as we're getting into the making of this record? Because I definitely want to hear about, you know, working with Slash. Because you, you, you touched on before how Gilby said something possibly had a turn in the press and pissed off Axel. But Axel ended up being on the record. So I have a bunch of questions. But uh, I want to get to you, Yanni, because I know you've been uh, quite a soldier just, you know, being quiet and listening. Yeah. Uh, I would like to hear some stories about them making videos. Do you want to say that? Kill me or kill the me. Music, the music videos, Yanni? Yeah, music videos making stories. Well, the first the first one we did was the Cure Me video. Um, Kev, I can't remember his name. Kevin something did uh, the direction on that and the storyboard for that. And we did it in a soundstage um, right when the record was finished, the soundstage in, in L.A. Um, they made it look like a harem. I don't know what the hell they were thinking when they did that video. It was pretty wacky. Um, you know, it was just, we got a bunch of friends to be extras and lay around in this harem while we did our song. And a lot of the things, there's, there's one really cool projection shot in that video where they're doing a dolly shot and they're projecting Gilby's vocals on a little screen and it's going down a hallway and you would have to actually really watch the video a few times to notice it. But that shot to me is freaking stellar. I don't know why I just love it because no one had a shot like that in any music video. And the projection with the on the screen going down the hallway, that was filmed in the old Ambassador Hotel, where unfortunately Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. But it was a closed, ready for destruction hotel that people were using for film sites. Still, they were renting it, so they did that shot there. And to me, that's a, that's to me that's one of the defining moments of that that video. That was a pretty painless video to do. It took all day. There wasn't any. There was only swamp coolers and fans in that freaking room, hmm. in the soundstage. So it was about 110 in there, if I remember. And uh, maybe went through the song 12, 13 times, and then uh, everybody else did solo shot stuff. We did Ryan and 
Gilby and Will, you know, another few hours and, you know, t- 10 times each. But that was a pretty painless video to do. I liked it. Then they said they didn't have a budget to do a second video. Then all of a sudden, magically, they pulled some money out of their asset virgin and said, okay, we, we found money for you to do. We're probably going to release Tijuana Jail as the next single. Would you guys do that? Now, this is where the fun begins is because we did that out at a movie ranch in the San Fernando Valley here in Los Angeles. Um, we, <laughs> we did that, and the storyboard was so terrible because it was like a typical every – typical music video that you've ever seen was thrown into one bucket and just, you know, kind of poured out all over this video. Um, it was a Mexican town set. So they just used, you know, mostly stuff with, you know, riding a Harley, driving a car fast down a dirt road in a bar, hot chicks, uh, hot chicks, cowboys, this and that. And then, you know, slash came in and slash is always, I'm down with anything you guys want to do. He's always been really cool about that shit. He has, Again, just loves to play guitar. So they had him walk down the street or lean against the wall and play a solo here and there. My son and Gilby's daughter were born like within a week of each other. Oh. Okay. So at that time they were both very young, like a few months old. So my wife was there in the in the trailer, you know, and then Daniela Clark was with, you know, Frankie, Gilby's kid. They were hanging out being mommy on the set the whole day. So it was it was a fun like family filled adventure of a lot of dirt in every orifice, um, many takes. It was also, again, 100 degrees out there because it's filmed out in the hills, the hills in uh, the valley. So, yeah, it was amazing. But Slash was pretty funny about the whole thing and was into it. Then we ran out of money. We had to stop filming. Uh, we figured out we only had enough for doing the one day there. And then we had to go out on tour. So we did part of North America and then when we were in Chicago, we found a bar. We can finish doing the barroom scenes of the band playing in this bar in Chicago. So we picked up all those shots from there. So ongoing, you know, three months to do one video. And the the drag is they they never did anything with that video. I mean, the Cure Me video was on MTV on Headbangers maybe a couple times. Um, I don't think... That one did anything, and then for the fun of it, Gilby had a friend that had an 8-millimeter movie camera, and we did one for Joanna's Chopper, and we did that one out in the street in front of Gilby's house and in Gilby's garage and made it super lo-fi. And it, it's so it's kind of crappy good. I know it's kind of oxymoron, but no, it was, those it was the a best. fun video to do. Those are like uh, my favorite horror movies. movies. <laughs> it was great. It was like a, you know, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes kind of video. Yes. So, you know, walking down the street, we did some of those pictures and setting up in the middle of the street in front of his house while cars go by. And we just waved to him. Hey, how you doing? With a playback on a on a boom box, you know, and then this guy went home and edited everything down and put it on a, a couple of VHS tapes. And that was the Joanna's Choppers video, which is also, I think it's included on the Gilby Club fan club VHS tape, right, Yanni? Yeah, it's on there. Yeah. It's on there. Um, yeah. And, you know, that was it. That was it for the videos. We had other ideas to do other stuff if we thought we had money to do it, you know. Um, but we didn't. You know, I mean, Gilby, you know, Gilby was, you know, kind of, a, he's a member of GNR, but he's also a side guy, so he wasn't making the big million dollars that the, the core guys were. Um, so, you know, he was lucky enough to pay for some things we couldn't when we went out on tour, like a better bus or better hotels to stay in. And, you know, Gilby shouldn't have to be paying out of pocket, but the poor guy was. 
because Virgin did not have any belief in that album and wouldn't put any money into it. Mm. Um, sad. It's really sad. But, you know, Gilby loves to play, and he wanted us out there, and we did as much as we possibly could. That's that's something else, man. Then, mm-hmm. then did you – this? I always hear the same kind of stories about Slash, how he's just always so – He's going, and he's kind of long for the ride. He just wants to play his guitar, and you said the same exact thing. You know, I don't. That's all he does. Which is awesome. I mean, that just makes him. Just that just makes him slash. And just to show you more of the uh, the sound bites that I have, uh, I could have had this uh, all set to go, so I'll just play it again and awkwardly. Slash is it real? I don't know if you're a South Park guy. <laughs> not. Uh, then how did uh, it work with bringing on Sorum and Dizzy, and again even. Even Axel, because when we spoke about that Outpatients record, uh, they worked with Slash and Axel. Uh, Axel came in, obviously, his wee hours of the night, had no idea he was on the same track as Slash. So it was a really weird, interesting recording process for that particular. Um, Axel was, well, they thought there was going to be, when we were doing the record, when it got time to do, uh, what was it, Dead Flowers, I think? Um, when it got time to do that, Axel, actually, Gilby, they weren't on bad terms at that point. Everything was okay. fine. They were talking. Okay. And um, no, this was, it was not too many months after that when all hell broke loose. But no, Gilby called Axel and said, would you be into doing it? And he goes, can I play piano? Because no. he loves to play piano. So he's like, yeah. yeah, sure. So he came in and then Axel and I did the background vocals on it. And I'll, I'll tell you, like Axel and I kind of knew each other before Guns N' Roses. And um, he was a mess. Uh, then because most people on the strip were a mess. I mean, all you wanted to do is just rock and party and go to the rainbow and hang out and pass out. Uh, but I hadn't talked to him before then. And I saw him, I walked in cause Gilby called me, he goes, Hey, can you do backgrounds on dead flowers? And I said, sure, but you got a bunch of other people. He goes, yeah, Axel's coming in. And I went, okay, cool. So I came in and then, Hey dude, you remember me from way back when he's like, yeah, what's been going on? He was the coolest dude. So unlike all the bullshitters try to say, like, oh, he's an asshole, he's, he's right. so rude. Fuck no. He's he's never been that. In my eyes and what I know of Axel, he's never been a dick. Not to me personally. I never saw him treat anybody in the studio or, or anywhere. I've never I've, I've never seen it. Sure, there's corresponding stories, but whatever. Not a lot. That's something else, that too. Is. We had the same kind of... It's always the same story with Slash, which I just mentioned. The same story with Izzy, where he's just the coolest guy in the room. And you hear that yep. a lot about Axel, unless it's somehow in the media and the story that gets out there and twisted and turned. And he just doesn't seem to be that guy. And it's not like I'm digging no. during these interviews, like, is he really an asshole? But it's just, how did it come out that he... No, it was... Like, well, yeah. How did the media create this story just from his... Just because of his lack of... Interview? Well, like, you know, the controversy breeds popularity, and they love all the dirt. You know, whether it's, oh, my God, he's uh, he's getting a divorce because he hit, you know, Aaron Everly, his first wife or whatever. It's like, I mean, yeah, whatever. Who gives a shit? You know, that's their business. He didn't hit her. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, there. <laughs> that, that, no, nobody was, but everybody says it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. And when everybody asked, that was the first thing that people used to ask me interviews after Gilby's record was, well, how does it work to work with Axel? Was it difficult? I'm like, no. If you say it again, I'm walking. <laughs> Wasn't, I mean, are you here to dig up dirt on Axel that you're not going to find? Because no. And I tell you straight, you know, 20 times over, it was absolutely a pleasure to stand next to him, to sing backgrounds with him, to hang out with him, to play piano and, and just rap normally. 
it was a pleasant moment like anybody else. Awesome. I mean, we're all freaking, we're all freaking LA veterans in this town. There's no need to be a dick to anybody, you know? So no, it was all, it was all kosher. Awesome. And that, that's wonderful to hear. And then the fact that you also had the experience, because again, like I said, on the West Arkeen record, it's like he just came in as, you know, his Batman hours. And sometimes that can yeah. affect people. And he, of course, he doesn't, he's famously doesn't come to rehearsal. That doesn't make him an asshole. That just could be just his, the way his process or whatever it is. Uh, so he's got his quirks, man. He's got his little idiot. We all do. So, you know, I get it. We all do. Uh, Yanni, any other questions as far as the um, the making of this record? Anything specific you want to ask Mark while we have him? I don't know. Maybe something that uh, when the pawn shop was out and you were touring, that, uh, did you have already plans for a second second album or? We were. Yeah, we were writing. Um, I can't say we. Gilby. Um, Gilby had a bunch of ideas, a bunch of newer things that we didn't get a chance to demo or record or everything that you've heard between the blues record and um, the pawn shop record. That's pretty much all we had that was recorded. I know a lot of people ask me, Hey, do you have any unreleased demos or ideas or this and that? I really don't. And I've looked and I still have a wall of, you know, sacred cassette tapes you know, of everything that I've ever done. And I look up there at all the Gilby stuff and no, every song that we did at that point, it was recorded. Okay. And, uh, any other ideas? No, we didn't have, you know, we had a bunch of ideas and we would play them at sound checks and, uh, and on the bus, you know, fooling around with them and stuff. But nah, it's unfortunate that we didn't. I'm sure if we would have had, and Gilby had the chance to make a second record, it would have been good. I thought it might've been better because I'm sure Slash probably would have come back and played on it. Um, I maybe would have had every song on the album. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's all it's all good. We you know, it's just, I wish we would have had stuff. Well, it could have been like what Slash is doing recently. Like, he came out with his, this is obviously post-Snake Pit, and I do want to talk about a little bit of Snake Pit with you, uh, <laughs> that he had that first record with all the different lead singers, and Miles was on a couple of them, and then he ended up, of course, now having a record and a band with Miles. So who's to say that the same thing couldn't have happened with Gilby? Yeah, he had all these guests on that first record, and then the second record is when he really solidifies the band. And it just sucks yeah. that you never really had the opportunity to, to get that. Yeah. And it seems to be really the label was was the roadblock, the major roadblock. Then what was the reception if the label was being a pain in the ass when you went out and you and you play these songs when was it mm-hmm. were people upset like hey where's guns and roses or like what was the vibe going out and touring with that record because it was a weird no, time no people wanted to see i mean people not many people came out north america not many people came out to shows i mean if we pre-sailed we'd be lucky to sell a few hundred tickets with that okay um like i said there was so much other interest between you know the you know 14 to 25 or 30 year old people they were more into soundgarden and pearl jam and all that stuff than right. they were us so, and there was a shock of, you know, bad vibes with what was going on in Guns N' Roses world that everybody was pissed off. I get it. Um, but we did okay. There was no nobody saying, you know, why are you out doing this? Or what's going on with Axel and, and Guns? And there was no bullshit. You know, we went out and played. People were there to, to see Gilby play guitar cool. and play his songs from that album. Granted, a lot of times we'd go out and Gilby would get bored of doing the songs on the album. We would only do like two and then we'd do eight covers. And then I would go, dude, people are here to hear your record. Why are we doing so many Bowie, Beatles, uh, st- 
Stones covers. Yeah. We should be doing. We should be playing your album. Right. And he's like, oh, it's all good. You know, we'll, we'll do it next time. I'm like, all right, okay. You're so lackadaisical about it. I guess it's okay. Whatever. <laughs> I really would have loved to play more songs, you know, on that album that we didn't get a chance to do live. Why? Can't tell you what songs we didn't, but why do you think it was like that? Because I mean, obviously, this is I don't know. his solo record and play his music. It's like we all kid around about the amount of covers Guns N' Roses plays now, but it's like yes. we know who they are. They're going to play their hits. But when you're trying to create this new band post GNR, you would think you'd yeah. be shoving your new music down the audience throats than just to oh, play absolutely. covers. It's, hmm, uh, that's... No, no I, I kind of, but I, you know, I'll, I'll say we we did maybe, if we did an eight or ten song set or something, Jesus, you know, it almost would be half cover sometimes. And, uh, and I would like, yeah, you know, they're fun to play, but these people need to know who Gilby Clark is. Sure. You know, and, you know, I, what am I? I'm the drummer in the band. I'm not going to get listened to that much, even if I am his good friend. You know, like I said, Gilby is Gilby, and he'll do what he thinks is right or wrong or whatever. It's his band. Sure. You know, but I don't know. I would have loved to just gone out and done the record from first track to tenth track. Would have mm -hmm. made me happy. Right. And, and to compare it to, I guess, all the, like, the spinoff sitcoms from GNR, for lack of a better analogy yeah. or phrase you know the snake pit uh you know i mean of course duff put out his, his solo stuff first before he created loaded but all these different outlets oh, it is that, things. yeah of course it the, the juju hounds of course they interviewed uh, jimmy ashurst uh, a few uh not, not episodes ago not too long ago uh then of course the, the snake pit we're going back to snake pit we, I, we were just talking about the current yeah. version of what snape's uh slash is doing but back then so what's your connection to snake pit because i know well the, the first one well slashes adam day has been slashes guitar tech since the beginning um adam's a great guy amazing guitar tech funny as hell um he left for a little bit and then this newer version of guns and roses slash came asked adam to come back and work for him again here's the story I, at the time, um, all this stuff was going on, and I, we just finished Gilby's record. Slash wanted to do a Snake Pit record, so Gilby was getting involved in that. They couldn't find a freaking singer to save their life. Now, at this point, I was working with a couple of the guys in Jellyfish, um, Roger Manning and Eric Dover. Now, Eric was still back in, in uh, Alabama or wherever he's from, he was still back there, and he was coming out frequently to write with Roger. Now, Roger had asked me to be a part of this band. He had um, Imperial Drag. So Imperial Drag was signed to, I think, Red Recording or something like that, a very brief label that was in town. Um, they, were, they were getting ready to sign with this label, and I was playing with them as well as doing Gilby's thing. And that's where I met Eric Dover. Okay. And Eric came to town, and uh, he was looking to get connected. So at the same time, us three just completed doing the Brady Bunch movie. And Eric's like, wow, thanks for getting me that gig. I hope something else comes up. I said, yeah, maybe something else will come up. Because uh, Adam Day had contacted me and said, keep your ears open. Slash is looking for a singer. Do you want to do it? And I go, do you want me to do it? And he goes, yes, you're a singer, you know, and Slash likes your voice, and I like your voice. And if I give you some demos, can you sing on some of the demos of the scratch ideas we did at rehearsal? I said, sure. So he brought the tape over, and I listened to it, and I went, this is way out of my realm hmm. as far as a vocalist. And I thought, you know, 
Eric Dover would sing the shit out of this. He's an amazing singer, and he's got that psycho vibe that might work wonders with this stuff. So I hooked him up with Adam, told Adam to call him, and then they then Eric went to a rehearsal, a snake pit rehearsal, and uh, they just did a board mix of like three songs, and you know Eric, who's great with lyrics, wrote lyrics on the spot, demoed up the songs, and the rest is history. Then he became the snake pit singer. So, so it's like really weird. Everybody wow. kind of ties in with everybody. And then Gilby ends up being on it as well. It's like, right. Geez. That is amazing. Uh, I mean, of course, and, and Matt Sorm as well, who you, you worked with. Yeah. Uh, that, that, <laughs> so you're kind of the, the original, I mean, it never happened, but the original thought of the first Snake Pit record, you recommended Eric Dover, who would eventually, yeah. of course, be on that first record. So you're right. That's six degrees of GR yeah. bacon. It's just, uh, that's so cool. And that you were, it must be flattering for one that you were thought of, and then it shows oh, how, I couldn't believe it. how humble yeah. you are. Where it's like, yeah, I can't do this. <laughs> Here, let me let me recommend a friend. Was there even a thought that like you know what? Let me try. Can I take singing lessons, or was it just like I just don't have it in me? There's somebody else. Uh, it's who's just, just a different it. genre that I'm not used to singing. Sure, okay. you know, and and it's it's hard. It's for me. It's really hard to write to Slash. Slash is a riff guy. He's not a melody guy. Okay. So when he writes songs, one song in three minutes, you're going to have like 20 different riffs going on in one song. And clearly you'll hear that, you know, on the Snake Pit record. But for some reason, it's a different mindset where Eric Dover could come in and go, holy crap, I get this where I did it. Because if I'm going to sing something, it's going to be more power popish, more Xanderish, you know, more McCartney and Wings or something. And that's definitely... It may work, it may not work, but I heard Eric's voice in my head immediately after already working with him with Roger and doing demos. I knew what he was about. Yeah. And I thought, that that's a good, because Eric's one of those, he's a psychopath when it comes to a singer. He can twist <laughs> his voice, like Lon Chaney, you know, he can twist his voice and <laughs> man of a thousand voices kind of a thing like Xander can do. And that's a little too beyond what I'm capable of doing, and I'd be the first to admit that. All right. So but, that's, yeah, I'm glad. That, that's the composer in you, like your dad. You you kind of saw, you, like, you know your your role. And I you, hear it. Yeah, you hear it. You hear it before it even gets played. Right on. Yes, sir. So why do you think, I mean, was it the label's fault? That I mean, we, we, that's a lot of it. But what we talk about now, I mean, Gilby's still making music. You're still working hard. Is there... Was there any sort of magic you would want to recapture? Because I, I still think how interesting it was that you guys were friends for so many years and never thought about doing music together. Then you make music together. You have something that's still talked about till today. I mean, Yanni just asked for memorabilia from, from that time just a couple months ago from you. So is mm -hmm. there ever a thought that you could kind of reconvene or make music with Gilby, or has that time come and gone? Um, I... I don't think anything ever is come and gone um, as long as you're friends and, and everything works out. Right. It's just timing. It's timing in different headspace. I mean, Gilby's very content with what he does now. He's very involved in motorcycle building and fabrication now as well as music. And he prefers going out from what I see. I don't know because we don't talk all the time anymore. Um, he likes his three-piece thing that he does with a bass player and a drummer and himself. And okay. he, can, he can be the only guitar player. And he goes out and makes a little bit of money doing gigs once in a while. But it's not a priority thing. He's not. He doesn't have that. I don't think he has the hungry thing of I want to get a record deal again. Okay. Um, I could be wrong. Um, if if we talked to each other tomorrow and said, hey, we should get a bass player and just jam in a room together and have fun, I'm sure he'd be up for it. I would. 
Cool. Um, there was never anything left bitter or sour in the in the you know in the whole me leaving the band. I know he was upset when I left the band when we came back from South America. I was just at that point where I really wanted to spend more time being a dad because my son was just born, mm. and I missed the I already missed a year of being with him because we were out on the road so much. It broke my heart, and uh, I wanted to focus more on my solo thing, which is called Power Slide, where I was just singing and playing guitar, not playing drums. I said, I want to commit a year to having fun and not playing drums for anybody anymore. Okay. So when I did that, I just, I focused somewhere else. That said, if we hooked up and decided, dude, we need to jam, I'm sure it would happen because it would be fun for everybody. And since we all, we know each other so well, as far as when we're playing, um, it would work. I mean, he's a good rhythm guitar player to play with because he's very pocket groovy guy doesn't care about being a flashy lead guy at all he just loves to play guitar and i like playing with him in that aspect and having fun um he he has said in interviews that he i was always his first pick as a drummer and i i was really almost set back tier wise on that one because i was very nice of him to say that um after all these years and playing with him and um it was nice it was nice to hear that Really cool. So what is uh, going on now? Because you, you've done a lot since. And, you know, we, we started off with the joke, you know, uh, the, the the Ronnie Dangerfield thing that, you know, you, you've done yeah. so much. And, even though even I can, can barely pronounce, uh, you know, your last name. Danzian, right? Dan Zizen. Dan I got it right. And I think Yanni is pouring cereal right now, right? <laughs> are, are you pouring? Are you making yourself cereal, Yanni? I think we lost. I'm here, still here. I'm still here. Are, are you pouring yourself cereal? Sorry. Are you yeah, pouring yourself like some Cheerios or some cereal and milk right now? I was uh, uh, giving some food to cats. Oh, <laughs> were, uh, yeah, yeah. Feeding your cats. Okay, I heard something going yeah, into yeah. a bowl. Right on. No. Yeah, there was there was uh, making sounds behind the door, so I needed to give something to eat. Hilarious. <laughs> Two cats. Cats um, hungry. What are your cats' names? I'll give them the shout out. Uh, ta- Punku is this male and Tasia is this female. Punku is as a red wine in Finnish. Okay, I like it. Yeah, they're Siberian cats from Russia. Russian. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Hopefully your Russian cats aren't wearing a wire or anything and tapping on this conversation. (laughs) Sorry, it's a current American hot topic right oh, now. <laughs> yeah. We'll yeah. stay as far away from that as we possibly can. Yeah, I know. Um, I know. I know. I hear you. But no, that's amazing. So, because you've done a lot. You mentioned the Brady Bunch movie thing, which is hilarious. I, I was obsessed with that movie growing up. The 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 band that uh, the late great Davy Jones was in with that song Girl. And, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. the... You know, uh, I mean, I grew up on Comedy Central. I do remember that show with uh, Mark Curry. Don't forget your your toothbrush uh, hanging with Mr. Cooper, Mark Curry. So you've done you, uh, you've done so many different things. So I mean, we could be here forever, and we've uh, learned a lot about you. But I don't want to keep you. And I know, uh, you know, we don't want to uh, um, Yanni's cats the the starve or anything like that. So and I do have. Oh, no, they I, are I, fine. They're fine now. <laughs> Eating all the time. My son, just came, my son just came in the studio and told me that there's people waiting for me now outside the door. Uh, right on. So I'll let you go too. But I, so I just want to like, what's going on now? How can people keep okay. in, in contact with you? What's the best way to to do it? Um, through my website, through www.markdanzeisen.com. Um, I try to have, if I don't do it, somebody else will post current things. Um, I'm easily 
contacted online somewhere. You can always get a hold of me. Um, now it's just I'm mostly focused on, you know, the studio here. I produce a lot of independent bands, record a lot of stuff for TV and film, songwriter, um, trying to come up with songs for shows that are coming out in fall, you know, gearing up for the new season on a, on a few of them. Um, just working with a lot of music libraries and catalogs, submitting a bunch of songs uh, for TV and film, commercial, uh, trying to stay productive that way, uh, working with a lot of singer-songwriter artists. Uh, I try, You know what? i got to multitask because I'm so, like I said, I'm so frantic and neurotic that I can't just stay with one thing because it becomes so repetitive I go crazy. I hear you. So I try to... I have to keep doing all these other things too, and uh, I don't care much for the business side of it. But you got to know the business side of it if you want to stay up on what's going on. So I just trying to stay with it, man. That's all I could do. I hear you, and even though you sometimes you feel like you know Mr. Dangerfield, even in the hell, yeah. I get no respect. I respect you. I think it's just so cool that you, you came on. You gave us some time today. And, you know, we're talking about uh, this Gilby Clark record. You know, it's, just think about it. We're talking about, for lack of a better way of putting it, the replacement player for one of the original members of Guns N' Roses made a record. And you're the drummer on that record. And we're still getting awesome stories about it, you know, 30 years later. You know, it's just it's yep. just so cool. So I know we it was only the tip of the iceberg with every you know all like the work that you've done, and I'm sure you have more. You know, I know you have a lot going on, but if you ever want to, I know you're still in touch with Gilby. But if you ever want to come on as a co-host, if you want to add on to the and multitask and add radio uh, host to your your name and co-host, and maybe we can co-interview uh, Gilby together. Or if you have another, if you have another uh, character in, uh, that you feel like would fit this format. Just like with you, I would get bored talking about Guns N' Roses, you know, from top to bottom. We are talking about GNR, but we're talking, we're, we're finding out about you, Mark, and all the different paths it leads to. So I like to change it up. So um, if you have, uh, if you ever want to come back on as a co-host, you know, the uh, the door is always open. But otherwise, uh, this really was a pleasure, and uh, I have oh, respect thanks. for you. Oh, Brandon, thank you so much, man, and I appreciate it. I mean, I could, I if I didn't have to leave now, I would talk for another hour because it's just very. It's a good part of my life, you know, and there's a lot of good friends still all these years later. And, I mean, we still stay in contact with each other. And even if we go to separate worlds, it doesn't really matter because we're all friends first. And you're officially, last soundbite for you, you are officially a... You're a bad apple. That's what I call my all the friends of this show. So you're always uh, you're welcome back anytime, Mark. And uh, I know our Facebook friends will hit me up if you ever need anything. And we'll be in touch. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Mark. All right. Take care. You too. Yanni, I really appreciate your, your time, and I know it's, it's up. You're up pretty, up pretty late. Is there anything that, you know, I, I wanted to find out before I let you go, is there anything we should know about you as a GNR fan? You were telling me a lot of stuff off the air. Uh, you were able to see Izzy in the original uh, carnation of it. Uh, you were showing me a lot of pictures of your collection. Do you share it anywhere publicly? Like, is there an Instagram, a Facebook, anywhere where? Because I know, you know, you and Remco chatted up a lot, and Remco has his his uh his Instagram account, his Facebook account. Is, or you just kind of keep it all private? Uh, there's this kind of Facebook group called Guns and Roses Collector. So oh, okay. There we always always update our collections. Uh, my collection is rather limited, let's say it this way. Comparing other other bigger bigger fans. Yes, I mean there are but, some crazy yeah. collectors out there. Some of which we talked about yeah. on this show. But you were still showing me a lot. Um, I mean, I hope you. I know you were kind of in the background a little bit. I mean, I, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You know, I I said before you're always 
you know, tell me to shut up or interject whenever. But, uh, you know, sometimes I just feel bad. Like Remco has stayed in the background sometimes. And I know it's different when we're you're on the phone or we're talking through Skype right now. And, and to, if you're not used to being on the radio or anything like that of how to jump into a conversation, I know that could be a challenge. So uh, I, I hope you weren't you, you enjoyed being, I guess, a bystander. I try to. You know, you got your questions in a little bit, but you're, you're welcome back on as well. Whenever we talk about anything Gilby, you know, if we interview more people from that world, you know, I know uh, yeah. this was a little rushed, I should say. Um, you know, I always try to be transparent. I only uh, booked this interview with Marcus a couple of days ago, and you were recommended to me, I think, yesterday when I put it out there. Uh, you know, who wants to be a special co-host? Uh, so that it was a little bit. Uh, rushed as far as a, as a podcast is concerned. So I appreciate you giving me the time and, and staying up late and giving me some, uh, some cool facts to bring into the interview and, and educating me a little bit off the air. So I really appreciate it. It was, it was really great, great honor to be here and hear these kind of great stories from Mark. Mark, even, even not, not so happy, happy stories, this recording, how it ended up to be. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. we're going to hear, uh, we try to navigate it through it. You know, a lot of the stories, especially the recent ones we did talk about West Arkeen, there's a lot of, of course, the sadness surrounding uh, the record and around West. But I try to bring it to a place of, of, you know, where are you now? How are you doing now? You know, because we all suffer. We all have our trials and tribulations, whether you are a rock star like Gilby or or, or Dan or um, not Dan. What did I can say Dan for? I'm looking at something else. Uh, or Axel or Slash. Uh you, I have my own trials and tribulations. I, I, I'm just getting to know you, Yanni. I know you've had it, but we all get through it, and that's kind of like what yeah. I want to show. Where are you now? Where are you today? So he sounds like he's in a good place today, Mark. And I hope we uh, do talk to him again. But uh, Yanni, you know, until next time, unless you have anything else uh, you want to say, I guess I'll, I'll let you go because I know it's like again, it's it's late for you uh, in, in in Helsinki. It's getting. It's getting early already, so it's okay. <laughs> yes, it's getting uh, early. Right, yeah. Right. All right, man. Okay. All right, Yada, you take care. All right, Thank bud. you. Next time, we're going to have some fun. We're going to talk to somebody who went to high school with Slash and many others. So the next episode, stay tuned, or you know what? We'll see what happens. That's why you should follow us on Twitter and Facebook, because there's always some fun drama to follow between episodes. So until then, uh, when will you see us? Well, the words of Axel Rose concerning Chinese democracy. I don't know if soon is the word, but you'll see it. Thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home.